You're listening to The Boss, Business of Surgery Series, Episode 69. Today, I'm talking with Dr. David Keynes. He's created a better way for us to use clinic time. You are going to love his system. I think this is going to be a great episode. And if you're enjoying these episodes, don't forget to rate and review and share with your friends. And if you want to hear more about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right, welcome back. I have a really great guest. I'm so excited to hear about both his story and what he has to offer because he's got some really great ideas that are really, I think, going to transform practice practices. So this is Dr. David Keynes. He is a urologist in the Boston area, um, and he developed a, a new way of, of shortening our visits and really decreasing burnout. So I'm really excited to hear all that he has to offer. So David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much, first of all, for having me on, Amy. I, I'm, I'm a big fan, and this is like really an honor to be here. I I was actually born in South Africa. Um, I didn't mention that to you before when we were talking off air, but I was born in South Africa. Most of my extended family is there. My parents moved with me. I'm an only child pretty much right after I was born to Canada and then New York. So from second grade on, I was in New York, and I've been on the East Coast ever since. I was the the first doctor in my family, and I, I for some reason, I always kind of knew that I wanted to be a doctor. It was like, ever since I went to the pediatrician as a kid, I was fascinated with the fact that there was this person who somehow knew everything about the human body. I thought it was so cool. It never really left me, so I hardly considered doing anything else. And then uh, medical school, you know, everybody reaches that surgery versus non-surgery fork in the road. That also for me was like crystal clear. I didn't struggle with that decision. I, I was completely infatuated with learning anatomy and it was very clear to me from the beginning, I was going to do something surgical. And then I, I met some urologists who were just great mentors and uh, fell into urology that way. I, I mean, I didn't even know what a urologist was going into medical school. And um, I actually, I did my residency in the Boston area, went to Cleveland Clinic for a year and then came back on staff. And I've been here ever since. Fantastic. Now tell us a little bit about your home life, because I think people would be really impressed with that as well. Yeah. So I got, I got a lot going on. I, uh, you know, I told you I'm an only child, believe it or not. My wife was also an only child. We both love babies. That was a dangerous combination. (laughs) And we, we ended up with five kids. If you, if we could go back in time, actually, I'll tell you when I was a a medical student, some faculty had five kids and I actually said to someone else, what kind of a lunatic would have five children? (laughs) Now I'm now somehow I'm that lunatic. Uh, I'm not sure how it evolved, but here we are now we have five, uh, beautiful boys. Um, and so our life is is very full. Um, I'm sure most people hear that and they think, holy crap, how, how could anybody possibly manage that? And we do it by the skin of our teeth. 
I was going to ask, you know, clearly you have to have some sort of secret to success to be able to you know, remain an active urologist and do all this amazing stuff on the side and, you know, all of the things. So how do you manage it all? I think my, um, I, I have to say my wife is the secret to, to my success. She has an incredible, um, her brain works differently from mine. She, the way she organizes things in her head is so logical and I, I, I'm not a great multitasker. I like to think that I am, but I'm really not. She, she actually can multitask. <laughs> she also has this incredible sense of fairness and um, she knows when, what battles to fight and which ones not to fight. And I'm constantly learning from her. So, you know, like when I'm home alone with all of them or say for the weekend, when she's away on a, on a girl's trip or for business, it's very, very hard for me. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, but, but, you know, I, you sort of have to compartmentalize things, focus on one or two of them at a time and sort of play whack-a-mole as you go. But it has a lot to do. It has a lot to do with letting things go. Um, and I have to give the kids credit too, because they are, um, they have to be independent. Like if you're thirsty and you want water and mom and dad are busy like if you're thirsty enough you'll figure out how to get that water yourself you know <laughs> and if not and if not you're gonna have to wait so um so that's how it goes uh i, I we, we we really don't have it all figured out i mean a lot of it is pure improv well i think that's a great lesson you know because what you figure it out is that if they are thirsty they will figure it out i mean right. you know we think that we have to do everything for our kids but, you know, a lot of times we just have to create the environment where they can do that. We're essentially safety nets. We actually don't have to do it all for them. Um, I liked your idea. Um, you kind of told me a little bit about, you know, what, what I guess, birthdays and landmarks are. So tell me how that has changed from your first child to your fifth. Yeah. So the coolest thing about having um, a big family is how, how, oh, I can just tell you from my own perspective, how I've evolved as a dad. Um when you have one or two kids or when I did, uh, I'm very focused on every milestone and zoom zoomed in looking at the trees instead of the forest, you know, and, and worrying and obsessing over every little aspect of how they are um, developing. And you get some kind of negative message from a teacher at school and it feels like the end of the world. And, and as time has passed, a lot of that stuff just like completely rolls off my back. Like if I know my, my youngest kid is doing just fine. Thank you very much. And I get a negative something from the teacher. I just don't even, it doesn't even bother me anymore. I, I like completely ignore it. Um, I'm, I'm much more uh, present in the moment with my youngest child because I, I don't worry about the things that I worried about with my first two i just don't care when he hits milestones don't care when he i didn't care when he first said his first word or walked or any of that stuff you kind of just realize it's all gonna happen in due time and um i'm enjoying him like i imagine a grandparent gets to enjoy their grandkids where the, they don't have as much responsibility and they can just enjoy this little person um you know, even last night I, I was putting him to bed and reading him a story and I just, I was just very present in the moment, enjoying 
his being a little five-year-old and his silly comments. And I didn't, I feel like I missed, I missed that a little bit with my first two because I was just so nervous about everything. What a great lesson. I mean, I just thought it was such a beautiful thing. That's really all that we have to do, but we make it really hard. <laughs> yeah, we really, we make it overly hard. I, I, I said to him the other day, I was, I was, he said, give me, he, he goes, give me a hug. And I gave him a hug and, and I said to him, his name's Levi. I go, Levi, are you going to remember this moment right now? And he had no idea what I was saying, obviously, but he, he said, no, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's not going to remember any. I'm like, I was just trying to hold on to this moment we had together and uh, it's going to slip away from him. But at least I, I, you know, it was special for me. I try to have those things and, and, and you know, I don't want to give the wrong impression. We still, my wife and I go through times where we're like absolutely at our wits end and we can barely handle it anymore and we want to run out the door. <laughs> but uh <laughs> But so, so the question is, how, how do you possibly handle it? The answer is barely, we barely handle it, but, but we asked for it, you know, and there are some really fun things about having big families that, you know, we, that are, that are special. And I completely agree. I think, you know, compartmentalization is something that probably helps a, a little bit. And um, I know a lot of people struggle with like, this is home and this is work. Um, but I think, you know, with five kids and a, and a busy, you know, surgery practice, you have to compartmentalize. Otherwise it'll drive yourself crazy. Um, Absolutely. Well, take me through, you know, speaking of, of, you know, paths, tell me a little bit about your path as a urologist. I know that you mentioned um, that you had your own burnout, you know, kind of scenario. So take me through a little bit about when did you first start noticing that the job was not what you thought it was, or your career was kind of taking a turn that, that, you know, all of a sudden you started noticing something was up. Yeah. So, you know, I was about seven or eight years post fellowship when I started feeling you know, it was around like 2015, 2016, and I started feeling burnt out. And, you know, these, these types of things aren't always clear when you're going through, but when you look in the rear view mirror, you can, you can sort of see the narrative. We worked so hard from college to get to med school and then med school to get to residency. And then we pick a path and, and the whole time we're charging towards this goal of being the surgeon uh, and having a busy practice and being challenged and, and all those sorts of things. And then once you get there, um, listen, I mean, there's a small violin playing for the, for the, <laughs> for, for these first world problems. I, I don't want this to come off ungrateful, but, but when you finally reach where the, the place where you're going and then and it's a very stressful job, as you know, you're a general surgeon. Um, then you have to keep doing that thing for decades. And you have to do it with the same intensity, you know, in your 30s as you do in your 60s. Uh, and I didn't anticipate that this calculus at all. Uh, and, you know, we, we're, we're dangled this concept in front of us about lifelong learning and and. I think to some degree, the concept is overblown. Yes, we keep learning new things, but they're minor modifications to our knowledge base. So really, at least my experience was that there was this huge learning curve, which I loved. I love learning new things. 
And the challenge of, of hitting your stride as a surgeon, very difficult, but there is a point in time where the surgeries become less challenging. They're, they're always going to be challenging, but uh, you know, I hope you know what I mean. They're, they're much more, they're much more predictable. Mm -hmm. Like when I was a young staff, it's terrifying. You don't know. You ask yourself all these questions. What kind of surgeon am I going to be? Am I, am I good at this? Am I going to be okay? Are my patients going to be okay? And then lo and behold, the straightforward cases start going well. And then you think, well, what about the complex cases? How am I going to do? How are my patients going to do? And then those start going okay. And then uh, after a while, things do become more predictable. And um, I never lost my engagement in the operating room. And I, and I, I still love doing what I do. But the repetitive nature of it um, and the predictability became a, a bit of a drag on me psychologically. Um, and, and so even more to the point, the clinic days started to feel like a grind. And clinic days should not be a grind. It, and I, I zeroed in on one aspect for me that felt like the biggest grind. And that was having repetitive spiels. I had developed all these spiels that I would say. And if you, if you said, give me your prostate cancer spiel, I, I could do it in my sleep. And you know, what, what does Gleason score mean? I could do it in my sleep. Kidney stones. I mean, everything became um, a spiel. And I can remember distinctly, I was, I was giving uh, this prostate cancer explanation to a 68-year-old engineer. This is around 2015, 2016. And I, I'm, I'm, I sort of have this like out-of-body moment where I reached the end of the spiel and I didn't remember giving it, you know, like sort of like <laughs> driving to work and you get to work and you're like, oh, I'm at work. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I have to say, this is, that's a, that's a terrible feeling. If, if we could all get back to why we wanted to become a doctor in the first place, we, we wouldn't feel burnt out that I really believe that to my core, if we can harness the, the, the medical student again, where we were incredibly invigorated by the person-to-person -person interactions. I don't know if it was the same with you, but like sitting face-to-face -face in an exam room, a patient that you're either going to operate on and they entrust you with this privilege of operating on them, or you have operated on them and they thank you. That is the best, the best thing ever. I mean, that that's why we wanted to do this thing in the first place. I know this is a long-winded way of saying, but what I'm getting <laughs> at funny. is, what I'm getting at is, when you feel like you're a robot in some kind of um, automated speech that you're giving, you lose that personal interaction. You're no longer in the moment. You're, you're just this thing. You're, you're this other version of yourself that's just going through your, your daily motions. And I don't think that we as professionals signed up for feeling that way. 
Right. And uh, you and I talked about this. Uh, you mentioned that it was probably about eight years in. And I've definitely seen that in you know coaching in myself and the people that we've had on that there's something about, you know, like the six to eight ish year uh, time frame. And I think what happens is, is that, you know, we've been on that learning curve, that really steep part of the learning curve for so long. And then as it starts to taper off, you know, we don't have quite the same excitement as before. Um, and, you know, as everything, all the drudgery of everything that goes into work. Now everything doesn't feel as exciting and new. A lot of it feels just kind of like, well, you know, same old stuff. And I had the same experience too. I can give like a breast cancer talk and a, and a gallbladder talk and a hernia thing all without thinking much of it. But you're absolutely right. When we spend more time doing that, then, you know, spending time with a person in front of us, we really do miss um, a lot. Um, and I noticed that when I hired my nurse practitioner and she does a lot of the, some of the drudgery for me is that I, I can actually spend a lot more time being the surgeon and the person and the talking. And, and that really changed. Um, and, uh, just like you mentioned, reminding myself why we became surgeons. And I think it was like maybe the boss episode, like maybe three early on where I recorded a lot of people's thoughts on, you know, why we became surgeons. Um, and I think it really is helpful to remind ourselves why we did this because we can get stuck in the drudgery of all this too. And that's, that's definitely where the burnout comes in is the excessive administrative stuff. So I, I just want to touch on a couple of things you brought up. First of all, the insight that you have being a coach, being able to talk to so many more people than I could possibly talk to. It's amazing that you see a pattern of a certain period of time after training where where you you see this as somewhat common? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's predictable actually. Um and if you look back at even at the episodes too, it's almost always that same time frame. Um and you know, I'm not sure exactly what it is about that, although, you know, my theories are just what I mentioned. Um but it's definitely it's definitely common and I think the nice thing about sharing our stories is that now we can start to predict it because it's kind of like sticking the frog in the boiling water, right? You know, it's not boiling at first. It gradually heats up <laughs> right. until all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm boiling. <laughs> and and the so interesting I, thing is that I don't remember any of my mentors of the generation above me talking about this. And either, either they didn't feel it or it was taboo to talk about. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean- I do. I think what happens is, is that- we all of a sudden feel burned out and there's, there's shame in it, you know, and shame is isolating. So I suspect that what's happening is that everyone has felt this. I mean, we've heard about midlife crisis all of our life, you know, but we think buying the cars, we don't think being dissatisfied with your job. Yeah. Um, and so I think what happens, you know, midlife is that you start straddling, you know, all that where you've come and now you're looking at the future and you're starting to realize you're kind of starting to make decisions. Um, and some of the things that were important and very, actually very similar to what you're talking about with your kids, you know, some of those things that were so important to hit the landmarks don't feel so important anymore. Um, right. And start to step back and say, I'm actually ready to enjoy my job and my life again. You know, like these forced things that we have that society has offered us that we're supposed to be doing don't feel important anymore. Um, and so I think that that your evolution, your family is actually very similar to our evolution in our career as we start dropping things that we now recognize are not important, that we made so hard. <laughs> that was very well said. And so I think the, the reason why that um, people didn't talk about it is because there's shame associated with it. I mean, who wants to come and say, I don't really enjoy my job anymore. You know, I used to like this. Um, there's actually a really great chapter in Atul Gawande's book, Complications, 
that really struck home for me. It was about an orthopedic surgeon who um, was working and busier and busier and everyone thought he was great and he was wonderful and he had great outcomes. So then he started getting two ORs and then he started. So he basically got this pile on his success led to more success until all of a sudden it didn't, you know, it was the story of a burnout of now all of a sudden, like, well, now people don't trust him as much because now he's making mistakes and now he's more tired. So he's, you know, not as available. Um, and I, I read that chapter and said, this is what I'm seeing, you know, like we think we're going to be successful and we're going to be happy and everyone's going to love us. And so we keep doing that same thing until we reach a point where we can't do the same thing anymore. We actually, instead of doing more of what we did, we have to do something different. Uh, and when we do something different, we tap back into what that was because we can burn out from this career that's amazing and wonderful and that we really fought so hard to get, but we can't do more of the same and get the same result. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the shame concept is really spot on. Um, I think there's a fear, and maybe it's, it's even in our generation that that if you complain, it, you sound ungrateful. But but really, these things are important to get out in the open because uh, you do need to not just reach a, a point in your career that you're proud of, but then you need to continue. You need to stay there uh, for a long time. And so the, the parts of the job that are... Um, unsatisfying or repetitive, or maybe can be outsourced to other people. Uh, there's no shame in doing that. You need to set up your practice so that it's sustainable. I mean, you, you touched on that uh, a minute ago when you said that the advanced practice providers could somehow take over your spiels to a degree, and then you felt more like a doctor that you want to be. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And you actually said it yourself too, because when you talked about the dissatisfaction of the career, you talked about bringing out the tiniest violin in the world, because that's what we think is people's reaction to us of saying, I'm not satisfied anymore. Um, and I think it's okay for us to start to recognize that there's going to be a point in our career where we're not satisfied anymore. And that's actually okay. It's time for a pivot. It's not time to necessarily give up or get out of medicine. It's time for a pivot. Um, and I think that you actually already figured all that out because you're about to tell us about your pivot, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. So um, the pivot uh, didn't started out in a very small way. I'm I'm realizing with this Gleason score spiel that I'm giving, like, okay, I can't do this again. Like I, I've already explained this thousands of times. I I don't want to do it anymore. And so I told my secretary, um, please send the PDF of the NCCN patient guide for prostate cancer. The NCCN puts out these phenomenal patient guides. And I said, please send it, email it to a patient when you make the appointment. And not everybody read it, but the ones that did when they came in, like the visit was completely different. We were starting from square four instead of square one. And, you know, I have to say, it's not all about me the patient benefits too, right? I mean, we get to touch on deeper concepts. This is not about avoiding talking to patients. It's actually about enhancing the conversation that you do have and having it be much more specific to, to their clinical scenario and not 
generic. I, I really think a patient's taking time out of work and they're sitting with an expert. They really, that's really not the best time to be going over the basics. You need to get to, you need to get to the good stuff, which happens after you're on common ground. So uh, that started working out well. And then, you know, I do a lot of robotic prostatectomies. That was another spiel. Let me explain robotic prostatectomy. So I did a, an explainer video and, and this was a bit, a bit of a bigger leap, um, but I, I just decided to do it. And I recorded this video explanation, put it on YouTube, not to try to get YouTube views, but just to have it housed somewhere so that my patients could look at it. Now I'm telling my secretary, send them the NCCN guide and have them watch this video. And the visits were even better. So then uh, Linktree came along. You f you're familiar with Linktree? I'm familiar okay. with Linktree. That's where you put in all of your contact information. So they get one link, not one all link. of the things, and they can pick the format that they want. Exactly. So you can share one link and you get a stack of buttons. And I saw that. And if there ever was a light bulb moment, I thought, my God, this is you know an easy way for me to organize my educational material. So I used a sort of a Linktree prototype again, just for my own practice. And it, and it, and it worked out really nicely. Still not thinking about starting a business because this is where, where this is headed. I end up starting a health technology company around this. But what I did first is I made a prototype for about 10 urology friends of mine around the country. And I said, Hey, would you try this in your practice and see if it helps? And people were like, all in on it. After a few days, they're like, "This this changed my uh, my my clinic." You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm not repeating myself as much. The patients love it. The interactions are better. I'm more engaged. And so it was only at that point where I thought, "All right, you know, there have to be other doctors like me and my 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 friends um, who feel stuck on a kind of a hamster wheel of." Of, of repeating themselves. Um, I mean, because the bottom line is when patients are better prepared, clinic days go better, right? Right. And so, I loved your idea. Like ahead. you don't have to start from step one. You can start from step four and you're already, you know, doing more with less of your time because you're offloading the stuff that you don't need to be a part of. And I think, I mean, that's the next evolution in our career is like we stop the drudgery and we remind ourselves, this is what they need me for. And they don't need me to do all that other stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, first of all, there's so much behind what you just said, but doctors are a very generous breed of humans, right? We're, we're, we're caring and we're nice, but that also means we, we get, we don't, we, we put more and more on our plate before we explode. Right. right. Where, where I'll, I'll just give an example because you're a general surgeon. I mean, where is it written that it's your job to teach gallbladder anatomy 5,000 times? I mean, it, it's actually not written anywhere. I mean, and if you think about it, it's actually crazy. I think we do these things out of a sense of obligation, like the patient needs to hear it from me or they want to hear it from me or something. It's not written anywhere. Like, the best time for the patient to learn about their gallbladder anatomy is at home before they show up to your office. Then how about you, how about you show them, you spend the visit 
in front of their their CAT scan, showing them their gallbladder. And then that's more exciting, I think, for the surgeon and better for the patient. So um, these are the things I'm trying to now uh, bring out into the open. And I really like this uh, format because not only can they see it before the visit, they could look back and see it after the visit too. So, I mean, I, cause I think the patients are under a lot of pressure to think that I have to get all the information from this doctor's visit in this time. And I have to write it all down. And, and I've, you know, developed my own, like just patient handouts for breast cancer. And I was like, put your notes away. I'm sure I'll answer all of them, you know? So now they could, they can start to listen and not feel the pressure of writing all this down and, and feel like they have to figure out the anatomy and all the choices is that they already have, you know, some idea. And they also know that the resource is going to be there after their visit. So they're not pressured to understand it even before they can look at it, have you explain it and then look, they can look at it again. Um, so they have three different times for sure that they can start to really understand what's going on with them. That's exactly right. So just for the listeners who are at this point wondering where this is all headed. So I start, I started, um, a health technology company, it's called Well Prepped, in order to develop this productivity tool for any doctor to use for, to set up their own, um, essentially, condition pages that are customized. And uh, it, we'll stick to general surgery as an example. You can set up a, a Well Prep page for appendicitis, one for inguinal hernias, one for umbilical hernias, uh, small bowel obstruction, thyroidectomy, parathyroidectomy, what have you. I'm sort of, I feel like I'm sort of speaking out of turn as a plumber talking about general surgery, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I hired a software development team to take this idea and uh, develop it into an actual software product that doctors could use. And and at this point it's out, out in the wild with, with hundreds of users and the, the feedback is, so some of the most satisfying things that, you know, this has become my purpose uh, because I, I've always known from a very young age that helping patients would be very satisfying to me. I had no clue that helping other doctors was going to be uh, satisfying for me. So, we, you know, every day users are sending me um, emails saying, you know, thank you so much. This I had never thought of this, but now that I'm using it, 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 it's really helped me and my patients are loving it and I'm repeating myself less and I, I feel a little bit more engaged. I'm not saying this is a cure-all, but you know, burnout is such a problem that you have to approach it with many different solutions. And this is just one little corner where I think the current system has it wrong. The clinic visit is like a very finite period of time. And if that runs over, the doctor has to borrow time from either the next patient or from their own personal time. And to me, that's the, the heart of the burnout problem is lo losing control over your time. And so to take it a step further, if you imagine you're about to open the door to the exam room with a new patient, you can't control what that patient knows and when they know it, right? And so you're opening the door and you're sort of wondering, like, how much does this patient already know? Because if they know nothing about why they're there, the train goes off the tracks right there. 
if -hmm. they're well in, if they're well informed, you're like, sweet, this visit's going to go really well. And I know when I'm going to be able to get out of the room again, not like we're constantly trying to run out of the room, but I'm getting at control. We want, we want to be able to control our time. And I think also um, not just with our patients too, but I can imagine, especially being subspecialty providers is that the primary care physicians, I was really surprised when a a friend of mine, who's a primary care, he's like, what do you do again? I was like, how do you not know what I do? (laughs) But they they had no idea what you do. Yeah, exactly. I can see them also um, when they put this referral in is they can say, hey, you can actually start watching this video before the referral comes in. And so, you know, really roping in the primary care provider, too, um, and allowing them to be experts in these things, too, because they would benefit from this as well, because they have the knowledge that it's there. And they can also get a little bit of credit of imparting knowledge to that patients, which will improve their relationships, too. It's funny. I, I I just have to share an anecdote from a from a well prepped user that is exactly what you just said. This is a urologist in Tennessee. He emailed me this anecdote. I couldn't believe it. The primary care doctor calls him. He says, "Listen, I got a patient who was diagnosed by another urologist. He has high risk aggressive prostate cancer. He's freaking out. You need to fit him into your schedule within the next couple of days." And the urologist is like, no, I can't, my schedule is completely full. I can't see him for another couple of weeks, but send him to this URL. I'll email it to you and have him start reviewing all of my prostate cancer materials. And it, it, it worked in the sense that the, the patient really is just hungry for information. That's why they're so anxious. And uh, the patient, it sort of allayed the patient's fears. They spent those couple weeks learning on their own time you could think of it like the visit started before they were actually there in person right Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's the sort of shift in mindset we need as doctors stop thinking about the patient visit as like starting only when the person shows up through the door you know virtually it can start before when the patient's at home and then to your point earlier, they can keep reviewing it when they leave and they can share it with family members. So um, I think that this is where things are headed uh, based on the, you know, early enthusiastic reaction from people who've tried to incorporate a system like this. And I should point out, you know, I'm not saying people need to use my platform, but by whatever means possible, Doctors should incorporate in their workflow, sending educational materials to their patients before they show up. Um, it, it makes our lives easier and it makes uh, makes the experience better for the patient. It's kind of a win-win. I completely agree. And having looked at yours, I know this is uh, will be audio, um, but I will post the, the link on there so they could take a look. But I think the Linktree uh, comparison is really helpful. But unlike things like the YouTube channel and things like that, what yours offers, the ability to customize it, and I'm not, I'm not getting any kickbacks, by the way, but anyway, <laughs> but when I looked at it, it really it spoke to me because it said that, um, you know, it has like the little the um, buttons on there that are very easy to navigate. Like here's the education, here's the videos. And so I can 
when I opened that up, it took me like all of uh, just a minute or two to realize the value of it because it pops up and I see all the things that I could click on, but it's all in one place. And then what I really liked, I want you to speak to this too, because uh, you had a great idea about this. In the bottom left-hand corner, there was um, a button for patient reviews. So, you know, the patient is already there getting the satisfaction ahead of time and reminding them, you know, here is an easy way to, to review, um, you know, the us so we can you know start spreading the word here to other people about how how great we are <laughs> so take us through your uh, process on the review part of that because i think it's really great okay yeah so so the goal when a patient shows up to a well prep page there's there's three things number one they should learn about the condition that they have number two they should learn a little bit about the doctor they're about to see so there's a meet the doctor section and then number three, there's some kind of ancillary things. And one of them is a review link. In the doctor's dashboard on the back end, they can put any link they want for this button. It says review Dr. Smith. They could put a health grades uh, review link. You could put a, you can make it go to Google, rate MDs, whatever you, whatever you like. Um, now, some doctors feel uncomfortable about this. I think that in this day and age, if you're not managing your own um, online reputation, you're missing a major opportunity. Um, I can tell you even personally, when family members need surgery or need medical care, I Google the doctor, even though I know that there are problems with these sites. Of course, you know, we're, we're not, this isn't, this isn't Starbucks. We're, we're providing complex care and, and a lot of doctors get upset about these rating sites, but they are not going anywhere and patients use them. So you may as well direct your happy patients to these websites. It's a missed opportunity. If you just wait for people to do it on their own, they won't do it. And the patients who have a bad experience, which inevitably will happen, even in a perfect practice, they're going to be the most vocal. Um, so, so that, that's the reason why I put that review button on the bottom. If a user doesn't want it, they don't have to have it there. It, it'll disappear if the link is blank. But what I encourage doctors to do is build up one review site and then shift it. So for example, have it go to your health grades uh, site first. And once you get enough reviews there, shift it to Google for a while until you get enough there and then switch it to the next platform. That and so that you know you want them sprinkled around uh, to various places. I thought that was a really great um, strategy because and and where your platform really feeds into that because now you can just the button is going to be the same for them, but the link that it takes them to can be customized, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, um, it it's one small feature, but you know if you use it. Uh, continuously, you really can enhance your your online presence and and give a voice for the patients who are already very thankful for what you've done for them. Exactly. Um, and one thing that you know I wanted to point out as we were talking, um, I know that this business was generated from your feelings of burnout, um, and I think that we're seeing you know epidemic levels of burnout for sure. And we're also seeing epidemic levels of businesses popping up too. And I, I think that you're a great example of how we can use our desire to achieve something different 
and solve problems that we have and help other physicians. Cause just like you said, we didn't know that we're also making other physicians happy too. I, I didn't know a couple of years ago that I'd be a coach for surgeons who knew, um, but something happens in us to where we develop an idea of how the world can improve. And this is how we gain our power back. And so, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, conflicting um, responses to physicians opening businesses, but I think that you're a great example of how you can take the the burnout, you know, feeling of lack of control and give yourself control back and give back to the world. Um, and that is, I think, really what the physician businesses have to offer the world. We offer a service based on our knowledge and our experience that's going to make someone else's experience so much better. And we do that in a way that does serve us, but it gets us out of this burnout because we gain the control that the system seems to lack. I'm so glad you you said that. There's a couple of threads I want to pull on the of what of what you just brought up. Uh, the first is I agree with you completely that physicians need a seat at the table for any workflow improvements that are going to happen. Right? We are in the best position to make changes to our own workflow, okay? That's number one. Number two is there, there's a sense, uh, I think, of inertia uh, upon most doctors that, that the cavalry is gonna arrive at some point, that somebody must be working altruistically on helping us out there, and that at some point, things are just gonna be better. And that just ain't happening, you know? Mm -hmm. or, and, if, and if corporate interests try to, you know, shoehorn solutions for us, it's never going to quite hit the mark because they're not feeling what we're feeling day to day. And um, so if, if for people out there who have an idea, uh, just take one next step to try and bring it to fruition. It's totally possible. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would start um, a software company or a health technology product it, it happened somewhat reluctantly. I, again, I told you, I was just scratching my own itch. But once I saw the potential, I thought, I have to do this. Like, I have to do this to try and get this out there and help as many doctors as I can. You know, before you started coaching and you just had the idea to coach, it feels overwhelming to, to start something until you just get started. The hardest part is just getting started, don't you think? Yes. Yeah, then, I mean, then it becomes clear. You basically, and I think the the most interesting thing I heard about entrepreneurs is that you step or you step forward and the bridge appears. You know, you're like looking yeah. at this big gap and you don't know what to do, and and you just have to kind of put one step forward, and that's how the bridge appears is not by seeing it first. <laughs> I think that's a great analogy. The other the other um, little piece of advice I I I would give in, in, along these lines is advice that was given to me by one of my favorite mentors of my entire career who I looked up to. He, um, he invented a lot of urology specific surgical devices. And um, for the beginning part of my career, I thought that that's what I was going to do. I was going to come up with a surgical device. And he told me, you know, solutions won't occur to you out of the blue unless you're sort of prime yourself to look for problems. You have to actively look for problems because most people are just trying to get through their day and get home to their family. You have to be sort of 
looking for things to fix. Um, as it turns out, no device um, inspiration ever occurred to me. It just ne- it didn't happen. <laughs> um, but but I, I would say that I was always actively looking for for problems with workflow. I wish software solutions was even on my radar as a young doctor because I think I, I could have come up with more ideas. But um, so, yeah, I, I would just leave it at that. If, if somebody has an entre- entrepreneurial bent, you have to actively look around for processes that seem silly, aspects of, the, of your workflow that seem repetitive. Uh, I'll give you another example. Um, in my practice, one of the best uh, pain relievers is having all my templates in the electronic health record like totally buttoned up and all my order sets. Uh, that's a huge workplace efficiency hack, if you could call it a hack. But you know, those are born out of frustrations, right? If you type the same paragraph or dictate the same paragraph every day and you don't make a template for that, that's just, that's silly, right? So similarly, I would just encourage people if they're interested in this sort of thing to look around as they go through the day and figure out, you know, what is super frustrating and repetitive and how do you think that you could fix that and then just do it. I completely agree. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I know that uh, I suspect you're a fan of Dr. Una's as well, uh, that the cavalry is not coming. The cavalry is here. Yes, exactly. That's right. I mean, we are, that's us. I mean, you know, um, I don't know. It's just, it seems so obvious that we are the ones who should be steering the ship uh, and, and not just waiting for someone else to. Um, But I, you know, I'm going to remember that stepping in the bridge appearing i because i i think it really is true um i had no idea how to start a a business like this this was like uh the other analogy is assembling the plane uh, while you're falling out of the sky (laughs) you know that 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 is what um starting a business like this feels like it's never it's never clear exactly what to do next you just take the best information you have and you go for it Yes. Um, I, I will say that, and, I, and I've mentioned this before in other discussions that I've had, uh, the way that you know that you have an idea worth pursuing is if the idea just won't leave you alone. Um, I've had a lot of terrible ideas over the years, and by a couple of weeks later, they kind of fizzle out, and I get some perspective, and I think, yeah, that was kind of stupid. Um, this particular one would not leave me alone. I kept thinking about it constantly, and that was sort of a a sign that maybe I was onto something. That's perfect. Well, I'm really excited to share this uh, this app um, because I really do think that it's going to transform and, and certainly at the very least your ideas behind all of this too. Um, and giving other people ideas of, you know, you can actually look at your workflow and make life better. And all you have to do is believe that it's possible for you to do it and that it is your role to do it. Um, and I mean, this is also the roles of the physician entrepreneurs and getting out of burnout. And I appreciate your sharing your story because I think the more we share the story, the more we do see this pattern and we can start you know, minimizing the shame associated with it and recognize it as a normal part of our careers, which all it means is that something really exciting is around the corner. You know, if you kind of take this dissatisfaction and say, well, I wonder what's coming, you know, it's a so much different way of approaching it than 
than, you know, that just sitting in that discomfort. Well, Amy, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. You know, if any of your listeners are hearing this and it's resonating and they think, you know, I would like to outsource my clinic prep to my patients, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, then, then they should reach out, and uh, we we can uh, we can help them get started. Wellprep.com is the the best first place to look. W it's a deliberate misspelling. W e l l p r e p t dot com. Yes. And if they want to contact me, they can contact me on on Twitter. It's Canes David C a n e s David. Um, my DMs are open, so it's pretty easy to um, to contact me by either of those. That's perfect. All right. Thanks, David. So thank you so much for, uh, for sharing all of your insights. And I mean, I think so many people are going to benefit from your story. Hey, thank you for having me on again. I really appreciate it. For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.